Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, and I have to say this, and I'm being objective. This is going to be the best radio show in the history of broadcasting. <laughs> That's no pressure. No, I mean, Eric's with us. I mean, another <laughs> Eric's with us. It, it really is. It's even going to be better than last week's, and that was the best <laughs> show in the history of broadcasting. So we're breaking our own record. Right. Okay, That's what we're going deal. to do. Good deal. I look forward to that. Yeah. So um, we got to live up to this, right? <laughs> so let's start out with some of our guests today. So There's some great ones. Uh, I love the lineup, and we're going to have a wonderful live conversation, too. But I want to say this name, Sal Cracciolo. You did it good. I practiced like a half a dozen times before I came in, and I got it half right. But I, yes. I hope I'm I hope I'm right on that, Sal. If yes. I, if I'm not, but but I see I, I spell it my own way. Okay, and that's smart to do. That's smart to do. <laughs> I do that too, but didn't do it this time. But who is Sal? He is a trumpet player for Tower of Power. Actually, he was a trumpet player for Tower of Power up till about a year ago. He was mm. with them for twelve years. I had an extensive conversation with him a couple of weeks ago. And uh, we talked about his love of the trumpet, and it was an amazing story how he got into the trumpet. Some of his experiences he had traveling far and wide with the Tower of Power. He talks about the miles he put on a plane and the places that he visit, visited. And um, also there's a particular interesting story of playing in Russia a couple of times before a czar or an oligarch, a Russian oligarch. Wow. And uh, it was just this well-enforced place and there were more security guards there than there were people in the crowd. There were like 20 or 30 they played for. They were well paid, so that's kind of an interesting story. <laughs> um, and then we're going to have Greg Witter, and he's a journalist and a founder of Coog Fan. And that's a website that addresses all things Cougars, but it also talks about what is happening in all of college sports. And probably, no, it is the biggest story in the last week or so, the fact that USC and UCLA are leaving the Pac-12. It really stunned mm -hmm. the sports world. And uh, what does that mean for the state of Washington? What does it mean for the Washington State University Cougars? What does it mean for the Huskies? They could be taking vastly different paths. So we're going to talk to Greg and, and just see what his opinion is on what is going on, what will happen. And um, there's so many scenarios going and we may add to the confusion or we may, <laughs> you know, straighten things out. I don't know. But what's interesting, this is still two years away. Yeah. And um, how is that league going to perform in the next couple of years? You're right. Lots of questions out there. But there was that co uh, collective groan heard throughout the uh, Northwest when that announcement was made. Because, yeah. uh, again, it just brings up tons of questions. What's right. going to happen? Stunning. And the history of everything going on today, okay, it's probably not way up there. However, again, we'll put it mm -hmm. in its proper perspective. We're also going to be doing Voices in History again today. We're going to cover July 5th and July 6th, which is today. And we're going to cover a span of 1921 to 1978. Some monumental milestones did occur in those couple of years, including the introduction today in the 1940s of the bikini. Ah. And that happened in the 40s. I always thought it was later than that. And you will find out how the two-piece swimming suit was named Bikini. It's pretty amazing uh, how it was. So you're going to have to hang with the show to hear that there in go. just a few moments. So uh, let's see. If you have anything you want to hear about the show and comment on for a future show, you can call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. That's 425 653-1166. So anything you hear today, call into that number and leave your message. So we'll be back with Voices of History in just a moment. to live. Have you explored today's market? When I spoke with Heather Ramos, 
she instantly put me at ease. I'm Coach Debbie from Story U, and I recommend Heather to first-time buyers or dream home shoppers and everyone in between. Let Heather's experience lead you to a perfect location and style and all within your budget. Contact Heather Ramos at Keller Williams. That's Heather Ramos at KW.com. Welcome back to Voices of Experience, and uh, we have Voices in History now. We're going to put that right up front on this day. Mm -hmm. Let's start out with July 5th, 1975. Arthur Ashe defeats the heavily favored Jimmy Connors and becomes the first black man ever to win Wimbledon. I kind of remember that, honestly. I'm sure it was on Wide World of Sports. Yeah, I do remember it too. I'm not a big tennis fan, right. but um, yes, I do recall that happening. And then actually on July 6, 1957, Athea Gibson became the first black American to win Wimbledon 18 years earlier, and she was woman. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah. See, I had no idea of that either. Hmm. But uh, yeah, she won it well ahead of Arthur. Let's see. I, I mentioned just before we uh, came in after or the introduction, now, we're, now that we're here, that on July 5th, 1946, a French designer introduces the bikini at a popular swimming pool. Why was it called a bikini? The U.S. had tested an atomic bomb off the Bikini Islands a week before in the Pacific. Jeez, oh, what a connection. Right, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> really? A bikini, I've never thought about that, but... Well, I bet when she walked to that poolside, it was like a bomb going off. I bet it shocked people. Wouldn't you think? Maybe that's it. Eric? <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know, but I'm not going <laughs> to pursue that any further, actually, right now. I got you. But anyhow, yeah, so there you go, the bikini. That's why I like this stuff. You know, it's just fascinating history. Um, let's see, on July 5th, 1921, a judge refused to throw out the case that accused several players of throwing the 1919 World Series between the Chicago White Sox and the Cincinnati Reds. Now, this story has never fully been resolved. People think they may have done it mm-hmm. or they don't, but they're not 100%. Um, there's a couple of things, though. Charles Kaminsky, he was the owner of the Chicago White Sox, who then became known as the Black Sox. But the reason why this may have happened is they were a great team, obviously. They got to the World Series, heavily favored to beat the Cincinnati Reds. But it kind of happened because they felt they were underpaid and mistreated. Now, hmm. one thing, the name Shoeless Joe Jackson was part of the uh, players being accused of doing that, um, you know, throwing the World Series. But what's interesting is that he had the highest batting average of any player on both Cincinnati or Chicago of the whole World Series. So mm. wouldn't you take a dive or strike out a few times? So right, I think right. that kind of vindicates him. But still there's some there's some shadowy questions about that, that whole thing. That's amazing yes. after all these years. Right, absolutely. Huh. And uh, the credibility of baseball. And uh, let's see, on July 6, 1933, sticking with baseball, the Major League Baseball All-Star Game took place at Chicago's Kaminsky Field, coincidentally, and it was a brainchild of a determined sports editor and nothing to do with baseball, uh, the management, or the American or National League then at the time. And the event was designed to bolster the sport during the darkest hours of the Great Depression, hmm. and it was originally billed as just a one-time game. They called it the Game of the Century. And that was going to be it, but then it caught on, and we still have the world, or excuse me, the All Star Game going now. How cool is that? So, sort of a diversion at one point, you know. Right. Forget your troubles. That's right. We'll have something to look forward to, as sports does. That's yeah. why it exists, mm. and that's why we're talking about it today. Um, and then in 1994, on July 6th, Forrest Gump opens and wins with Tom Hanks. Excuse me, Forrest Gump opens and Tom Hanks wins his second Oscar. Oscar. Wow. 1994. It's a long time ago, and to this day, that's my favorite movie of all times. Mm-hmm. My second favorite movie of all time is Saving Private Ryan, and that's another Tom, Tom Hanks. Hanks movie. Tom Hanks. 
you know, it's one of those movies, too, when it comes on the television, you know, uh, it gets picked up or something like that, and it's just plain, always stop and watch it. Both of those movies. Right. They're that good. They hold up. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> so there we have it. Um, so we're going to... Well, um, you forgot the, having... the most important date, though. Right. Uh, July 7th, 1967. That's my birthday. That was your birthday. <laughs> yes. Oh, so well, I have it right here, Eric. You didn't let me finish. You know, I was going, this was, this was it. That's so, right. um, yeah, here it is right here. It's right here in Wikipedia. I see it right there. You're famous there. Uh, so famous. So, well, um, I love, I love the history segment and, uh, you gave out a phone number earlier. I, I would really like for the audience to uh, comment on the things that you talk about during the history, uh, especially if they have a personal connection, maybe they were there at the event or, you know, had a relative that was involved. I, I always find that interesting. It would be, it'd be kind of neat to hear from our audience that way. Uh, so let me give out that, uh, that hotline, if you will, for Voices of Experience. It's 425-653-1166, 425-653-1166. And, uh, and since we're talking about audience and, and that sort of thing, I want to say a special thank you to all those people that have spread the word about your show, Paul. No, very much appreciate it. And, and uh, they comment on what they like and what they'd like to see happen. So Absolutely. That, that's great. So um, I also want to let you know that these um, historical moments are uh, brought to you, not say brought to you by, but I get a lot from the History Channel, This Day in History. If mm-hmm. you like history as much as I do, and I know you do, and mm-hmm. Eric does, this is the type of uh, website to go to. It's, it's fabulous. It's a goldmine. Love it. So anyhow... We are going to have Greg Witter on the show in just a few moments. And um, sounds great. We'll get to him. Is he uh, around right now? Okay. Well, we got uh, him right in, not in the studio, in the but hopper. on the phone. He's, He's in, in the, the hopper. hopper. Hello, Greg. Hey. Uh, you, we do have you. How are you today? I'm good. How are you doing? Uh, doing really well. Uh, we talked a little bit about you. In our opening uh, segment, um, I'm going to let uh, Paul remind those people who uh, were listening then and those who are just tuning in as to why we love the fact that you're with us on today's live program. Go ahead, Paul. Well, I said Greg is a real expert in sports in general. He's, mm-hmm. uh, as I said, a journalist, a graduate of Murrow College, and so he's got all that wonderful education at Washington State University. And, of course, I'm objective <laughs> about that. But he is here, and he's uh, the creator of uh, something called Coog Fan. But, again, it's just not a WSU, I'd say, website in and of itself. There's so much on there that he researches out, and that's mm-hmm. why I thought it was uh, so important to have him here today to talk about what has happened in the Pac-12 and what will we see going forward. And we've talked about this, Greg and I, uh, yesterday, so this is why I wanted to have him on the program. Hey, Greg, I want to start out with this statement and um, have you react to it kind of represents what I feel about the whole matter. And this comes from Jim Moore, a former Seattle Post-Intelligencer columnist and now with the News Tribune. Okay? And uh, and I might add, Jim uh, has also been a periodic columnist uh, for us at KookFan.com for the last uh, 10, 12 years. Right. There you go. And uh, yeah. sorry I missed that. You're right. And um, he's one that you don't have to ask, Jim, what's on your mind? And he kind of said that here right now. So I'm just going to say this and then kind of kick things off. I can't control what's going to happen anyway. I'm going to sit here. I'm not going to sit here and worry about the fate of my alma mater. But does it bother me that Washington State might join the Mountain West? Sure. Will I look forward to a Saturday afternoon in Pullman when the Cougs play San Jose State? Yes. But not as much as if they were playing Arizona State. The thing is, I'm just sick of it all. First, the transfer portal. Then, the name, image, and likeness fiasco. And now, this, the money grab by schools seeking much greener pastures. Everyone involved, the supposed leaders who prompted so much change, they can all kiss my big, fat rear end. Thanks for wrecking my favorite sport. I hope you all choke on your greed. Jim Moore, not me, but... All right, (laughs) You know, Jim. Always say about Jim is you never have to guess where he's coming from. Right. He says it all. And what what is your reaction to that? Are you finding that uh, when you're hearing back from people, not only from the state of Washington, but elsewhere? 
well, elsewhere, yeah. And, you know, the interesting thing is um, my son Ryan graduated from USC a year ago. Now, granted, he was raised by uh, a devout Coug, and my wife is a devout Husky, so uh, he, he understands the importance of the conference and rivalries. And he and, and most of his buddies, again, these are young graduates of USC, they, they were very disappointed, very concerned, moderately upset with the news that came out last week because they see the value of the tradition uh, that this conference has. It's, the conference is 107 years old, you know, unlike the Big 12, which is a reconstituted version of the old Southeast Conference and a couple iterations of the Big 8. The Big 12 is effectively 15, 20 years old as it currently stands. So Texas and Oklahoma leaving the Big, the Big 12 is not as momentous as USC and UCLA leaving the Pac-12 simply because our conference is 107 years old. So it, it was a shock to the system, I think, for almost everybody. Now, when you, when you start looking at the dollars and cents of it, yes, I, I can see why USC and UCLA would want to go to the Big Ten. Um, the dollars and cents add up. I, I totally get that. But I think there's, there's some broader issues that need, need to be addressed. But in terms of Washington State, uh, the Cougars are, are – well, let's not be, beat around the bush here. The Cougars are in a precarious spot right now. So we've been part of this uh, prestigious conference for more than 100 years, and now it's being threatened by – through no fault of, of quote-unquote, our own. Um, but anyway, here we are. Uh, people are scrambling. There's all kinds of avenues people are speculating about and talking about, and things are moving incredibly fast right now, uh, at least in terms of the rumor mill and the buzz and – who all is following it from a media standpoint. Where it all lands is, is hard to say, but uh, needless to say, there's great intrigue right now and concern. Sure, and uh, it seems to me that Washington State and Oregon State are kind of in the same category, kind of out of the equation, and it's all like, what's Washington going to do? What's the University of Oregon going to do? Um, now even the ASU, Arizona's, Utah, and Colorado, what they are going to do. Um, what do you have any reaction to that in terms of maybe what, um, like, for example, when you have UCLA and USC leaving, the rivalry means that much to them. They'll still have that game. Now, if Washington leaves and goes to the Big Ten, I doubt Washington State and Washington will have a games going forward anymore. And that would just be a big loss. And the same with Oregon, Oregon State. Well, on the sporting scene and really on the, as part of the cultural scene, those rivalries are part of the fabric of our communities, both I'm talking about the state of Oregon and the state of Washington. <clears throat> these rivalries, again, like the conference, these rivalries go back more than 100 years. And, and it's, it's a ton of fun. Uh, as a fan, it's great fun to have that rivalry week, uh, not just in football, then you have it again in basketball and, and other sports and so forth. So my guess is they would probably continue to play each other for a year or two or three, but at the end of the day, if Washington were in the Big Ten making $80 million a year, they would never come to Pullman for a road game. Right. So now you're looking at, okay, if you want the Apple Cup to go forward, every game's got to be played in Seattle. Well, by definition, if every rivalry game is played in your opponent's stadium, your odds of winning it go down exponentially. So hmm. I, I would think that would be the demise of the rivalry, quite honestly. Sure. That'd be hard to take. I mean, it's like... People will get over it 30, 40 years from now, but people who have been watching football, I mean, I was a graduate of Washington State University and was a freshman there in 1971, a long time ago, but I, the joy that we had and the tears you have when you were playing this game against the Huskies back and forth was just really unmatched. It was just a really, it's been, or I'm not bearing it yet, but what a wonderful rivalry, which the Huskies have dominated, but we've certainly had our victories and it's been a lot of fun. And it's the same up and down the coast, a civil war with Oregon and Oregon State, Cal and Stanford, and, you know, down the list, UCLA, USC. But it was such a great concert, or excuse me, conference, is when I'm looking at, um, you know, going forward, that really the Pac-12 was, is a marquee conference, probably the best-known conference in the United States. And to see the possibility that it just may go away is really hard to fathom. Well, I think you fit on it there, Paul. It is hard to fathom. Uh, but, you know, going forward, I think that's one thing we as Pac-12 fans should hang our hat on is that the brand is incredibly powerful. So if, if all the pundits are saying, well, it's, you're going to have the Pac-12 is going to take over the 
Big 12 or the Big 12 is going to take over the Pac-12 or some iteration thereof, the fact of the matter is Pac-12 is a big-time brand. You know, USC and UCLA are gone, yes. But the name Pac-12 is a big-time brand. You talk to any sports fan in the country and you say three words to them, Conference of Champions, and they know exactly what you're talking about. If you ask like an average sports fan anywhere in the country, name a team from the Big Ten. They would say Ohio State or Michigan. Name a team from the SEC, Alabama and whoever, right? Mm-hmm. Same thing with the Pac-12. Then, then if you if you pose the, the Big 12 at them, now that Oklahoma and Texas are gone, um, you know, you might get a Iowa State, Iowa. You know, it's one of those flyover, it's that flyover country area, right? <laughs> right. So from that standpoint, the Pac-12 brand is exponentially more powerful than the than the Big 12 brand. But that that's just a small piece of all the, the parts that are moving around right now. Eric has a question for you. Yeah, Greg. Um, for those out there who aren't so familiar with sort of the why behind this, can you discuss why would these teams want to leave uh, the Pac-12 to begin with? Yeah, well, that's a multifaceted answer there, and I'll just try to give you a, a super brief answer. Um, it really goes back to the media rights deal and construct that former Pac-12 commissioner Larry Scott put together for the Pac-12. Okay. And I, w- I won't go into all the in- ins and outs of it. Um, <clears throat> but we, we march to our, when I say we, the Pac-12, march to our own drummer in 100% owning our own TV network, the Pac-12 networks, unlike the Big Ten and the SEC, which basically went into business with major networks um, to create their individual conference networks. Now, let's step back from all that. The ins and outs of Larry Scott's calamitous 11-year tenure as head of the Pac-12. The bottom line is the Pac-12 does not have a meteorites contract that pays money to compete with SEC schools and the Big Ten schools. So, for example, the current meteorites deal the Pac-12 has pays now an average of about $22.5 million per year over the life of the contract, which ends in 2024. Okay. $22.5 million is the average payout. So this past year, if my understanding is correct, the Big Ten teams got $54 million. Each team got $54 million in the last year. And under their new rights deal, uh, which I think kicks in in 2024 or 2025, each Big Ten school is going to get approximately $80 million a year in revenue sharing. So we're looking at $80 million here, right. 22 to $30 million over here in the Pac-12. And the Pac-12 leadership made made a lot of missteps along the way. Uh, media rights deals, uh, some very incompetent uh, officiating that has denigrated the reputation of the conference in basketball and football over the last 10 to 15 years. There's one misstep after another. It just it literally goes on and on. But the fact of the matter is, the Big Ten has all the major markets cornered. So, you know, you may ask, why would the Big Ten have wanted to bring in Maryland and Rutgers? five, six years ago, whenever it was that they did that. Well, Rutgers gets you uh, New York and Philadelphia television markets. I see. And Maryland gets you Washington, D.C. So right there, by just by adding those two hangers on, you've just added three of the five biggest television markets in the United States. This may be naive, but, you know, we talk about markets. Certainly we know Pullman's not a big market. But we do have 75,000, 80,000 graduates who live in western Washington and are part of the Seattle TV market. And we know the Cougars are a pretty rabid group. And um, why isn't, is that factored into, you know, when you're looking at uh, TV market, you know, and all, and all the numbers and because it's part of the Seattle market in that sense. And Oregon State's part of the Portland market. That's a great question, Paul. And I, I don't have any answers to that. And I'm, I'm sure the numbers have been crunched. But the fact of the matter is, when you look at the state of Washington and Washington State University, Washington State has a presence, literally a physical presence, in all 39 counties in the state of Washington. And we've, as you said, we've got a huge number of graduates in uh, greater Seattle. So while the pundits will look at Washington State's TV market and say, well, Spokane's number 72 nationally and the Tri-Cities slash Yakima are number 122, the fact of the matter is – we, Washington State, should get some credit for Western Washington because we have so many partisans in this region. What those numbers are, I don't know. I, I presume WSU has done all the, the crunching on that to make their case. 
but how it all adds up, I don't know. But it's a great question. It really is. Good. I got one today. Um, <laughs> now, what do you think, um, Greg, in terms of the portal and things like that and the name, image, and likeness? Do you think this was kind of the nail in the coffin, the last one when this came out that made the push or they don't have anything to do with each other as to what's happened? I kind of had that feeling when that happened. And I think we talked about this that I'm going, OK, I'm tired of the arms race. You know, OK, I'm a contributor to Washington State's athletic department, certainly not like a lot of other people, but I've given my fair share. And then I started to think with this now, we're going to get hit on for more money and a lot more, and it's kind of like I hit the point and go, I'm out. You know, this is kind of like how much do I have to support? And I'm looking at it, I have to support a USC athlete to keep up with them because they're going to be making a lot of money now and have those opportunities because they're in L.A. You see what I'm driving at there? Yeah. In terms of the decision behind USC and UCLA, I'm not sure how those would have factored into it. Uh, I'm probably not close enough to to know it that in that kind of granular fashion, but on its surface, I, I don't think they played a big decision for USC and UCLA. But I will say, from uh, the Washington State perspective, there's kind of two sides to the NLI coin. So on one side, well, Washington State has never made its way by recruiting five-star athletes. You know, and in my lifetime, we had Drew Bledsoe, Mark Rippon. God, I think that's about it in terms of five stars that the Cougs have recruited in my lifetime. Uh, there may be one or two others, but Washington State doesn't make a living recruiting five-star athletes. Washington State makes its way and gets to Rose Bowls periodically by recruiting the three-star athlete, coaching them up, keeping them around for five years. That's how Washington State does it. So to that end, I don't know that NIL changes the, the playing field any more than it was already skewed toward the bigger schools. Very good point. Very good points. Um, now, what's your projection? Uh, now having said that, though, Go you ahead. Know, to your point about the arms race, so Washington State was way behind, years and years behind on the facility arms race. Washington State finally catches up. The last piece of that puzzle really is building a, a new indoor practice facility. Um, so once you've caught up on facilities or close to caught up, now now you layer in NIL. Okay, so everybody's already give, giving as much as they can to build facilities and scholarships and so forth. Well, now can you throw an extra thousand bucks in so we can uh, pay? All our athletes, a little, a few bucks here and there. You know, really, where where does it end? Right. And I don't know. Yeah. It, it, to, to, to Jim Moore's end, wow, the sport that you grew up just loving and waking up on Saturday morning and waiting for your favorite team to play, and while you're waiting for your favorite team to play, you're watching uh, the Big Ten and you're watching whatever else, and and it's you know just increasingly becoming a, uh, a step down version of the NFL. It seems. Well, we can go on and on about this. We'll probably have you back. I'm just going to make a projection. I think the Pac-10 or 8 or some semblance of that is going to remain intact. I'm going to say that now, and I'll deny I ever said it if it doesn't. <laughs> but uh, anyhow. <laughs> Greg, well, thank you very much. That, What's hey, that? Let me, leave you, let me leave you with one final thought. Please uh, do. We, we at KUFAN.com ran a guest commentary today written by a faculty member at the University of Alabama who happens to be a Washington State graduate. Okay. And it's, uh, to, it, if you're going to read it, set a, set a few minutes aside because it goes into some depth. But it is an incredibly uh, comprehensive, in-depth look at what's going on, how we got here, but more importantly, why it behooves Washington, Oregon to stay in the Pac-10 and why, uh, Pac-12, okay. slash Pac-10, whatever we are, uh, and why they need to make sure Washington State and Oregon State come with them. All right. Uh, glad to hear yeah. that. Good, good. To, I'm very happy to hear that. I'm going to definitely read that. Coog fan, great job. Thank you so much, Greg, for being here. All right, fellas. We'll see you later. Have All right. a wonderful day. Take care. So that's Greg Witter, and we'll be back in just a few moments. We're going to talk about some entrepreneurism. When a flock of geese knocked out two engines on U.S. Airways Flight 1549 right after takeoff from LaGuardia Airport, who would you want in the cockpit? Captain Sully or a pilot on their maiden flight? 
If Captain Sully was your choice, then experience is important to you. And that's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. A variety of topics are explored, including local and national public affairs, self-employment, travel, lifestyles, health and fitness, history, and adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. And we are back with this edition of Voices of Experience. You know, Paul, we only have, unfortunately, about a minute here to talk about this uh, This in the entrepreneurial se- uh, segment. I'm just going to put it out there for you. Is now like the worst time ever to become an entrepreneur when you look at the possibility of recession, interest rates climbing, COVID, and inflation? I mean, should, should somebody just couch that for now? Uh, I would say no. I think more important is the type of business you're going to go into. And I always suggest that people, when they choose a business, they design recessions. Mm. They design interest rates going up. There's going to be difficulties. When I started my business in 1988, um, the economy was good. But then, of course, uh, 9-11 hit, 2008 hits. We had a lot of different uh, things happen. And just the year before 1987, we had a big recession. So you want to get a business, that's I've always submitted, think worst-case scenario. Everybody says, think positive. <laughs> get out there and build a business like nothing's wrong. No, put in some bumpers. You know, Things are going to happen and plan for that in your business. And there's, if we had more time, it's about keeping your overhead low, doing that, and grow slowly. But no, I don't think you um, plan for that because it's going to happen at every juncture if you're in business for a long period of time. There you go. And if nothing else, you can say, I survived that. I can survive anything. What exactly. the heck? Going exactly. We've got a great interview coming up. All right. My guest is Sal Cracciolo. That's about the best Italian you're going to get from me. But Sal played with the band Tower of Power for about 11 years. He just stepped aside a year ago because he wanted to stay home and be around his wife more. He traveled the world and we talk about all this. So I don't need to give you a lot of introduction to Sal because, again, we talk about a lot of what I would cover in the introduction during the interview. This is an extended interview, but I think you'll really enjoy it. I asked him during the interview, what was his favorite song with Tower of Power? He told me, and I play that at the end of the interview. You came from a musical family. Your dad played the accordion and piano and taught both. Your mom was uh, second trombone, I heard on your video, in the Detroit Women's Symphony. And yeah. when I looked at an interview you had recently about last year about uh, you playing with Tower of Power and, and your past and how you got into music, it didn't seem to me that your parents really tried to influence you greatly you kind of found this on your own. Seventh grade, you found your love for a trumpet. Is that correct? Is that perception correct? It sure is. I uh, I grew up in Long Beach, California. Both my parents were musical. There was always music in the house, the record player, and there was always all kinds of genres of music. And my mother was actually my first trumpet teacher. And it was just, I was so lucky that they just said, I, one day I said, I want to play the trumpet. And we had one in the house. And my mom said, go get it. And she said, it's easy to play. Just buzz your lips like this. And here's all the fingerings. She said, it's easy. Well, she, the first time and last time she ever lied to me. It's not an easy It doesn't play. look easy to me. It never has. It does not look easy. She started me off then. She got me a trumpet teacher. And I studied with him for six months. And where I grew up in Long Beach was kind of a tough neighborhood. So I didn't venture out a whole lot. 
So I just always practiced the trumpet. And after six months, my mom took me on Saturday to the, my trumpet lesson. And after halfway through the lesson, my uh, Mr. Maltz, Norton Maltz, he said, is your mother in the car reading? I said, yeah. He said, go get her. I have to talk to her. And I go, oh, oh, I'm in trouble. So I went out and I got my mom. I go, Mr. Maltz wants to talk to you. She came in and she goes, what's, what's the problem? And he said, I cannot teach your son anymore. She goes, why not? All he does is sit around the house and practice that trumpet. He goes, that's the problem. He needs a better trumpet teacher. He goes, really? Yeah, and there's two guys I have in mind. For anyone that really knows the history of trumpet, he recommended a man that was 30 miles south of me by the name of Rafael Mendez, who was one of the virtuosos of all time on trumpet. He was brilliant. The other one was James Stamp. And so he was like 11 miles away. So my mom chose to go to James Stamp. My mom said, which one's better? He goes, they're both equally great. And so I went with James Stamp and he gave me an unbelievable classical foundation. And he's taught some of the world's greatest classical trumpet players around the world. And so I got a very strong foundation in that. And I just loved it. But then and I just kept practicing. And I had taken karate for like three and a half years before that. So all the concentration and dedication that you put in the karate, that I did put in the karate, I put in the trumpet. And somehow I pulled it off, Paul, 50 years playing professionally all around the world, 45 different countries, including our beautiful country. And I'm well over 2.5 million miles on all the airlines frequent flyer programs. And right now I've got over 700,000 miles for free trips. And I don't want to go anywhere (laughs) near that. Well, let's go back a little bit and talk about how you hooked up with the Tower of Power. How did that all come about? Back in 75, I met the original lead trumpet player, the fantastic Mick Gillette, at a concert. Trumpet players are a different breed. They're a different animal, usually alpha. I don't really have that real alpha thing going on. I just love playing lead trumpet and jazz. We became friends back in 75. And then five years before I joined Tower, I met the uh, arranger in the band, Greg Adams, second trumpet player. I played in his band for a year and a half. I mean, both these guys are legendary. And I met another guy, Bill Lamb, a fantastic trumpet player. He's on uh, Live and in Living Color. And he was from Los Angeles. And I used to see him around. We used to do jobs together. When I got called for for the band, I was like absolutely shocked and surprised. And I said, how, how did you get my number? They said, oh, the second trumpet player, Adolfo Acosta. He goes, but we've had our eye on you for a long time. Because they knew my lineage of some of the bands I played with. Poncho Sanchez and Tito Puente, Celia Cruz, Clayton Hamilton Jazz Orchestra, Tom Jones, Michael Bolton. Harry Connick Jr. At a certain point, there's a small circle of trumpet players that are still playing and surviving. And so they gave me the call and I went up to Canada and that was, I was subbing on the band. I got the book and looked at it for two days beforehand. And I flew up and the gig was at an Indian casino in Vancouver. And it was February 25th, 2011. I did a a horn clinic with the guys. And they, so they really got to hear me in the horn clinic, and they were surprised. And then I did the gig at night, and I, I did a really good job. And afterwards, they said, how do you know our music so well? I said, I've been playing in garage bands, <laughs> like all horn players. We all play the music of Tower Power and Earth, Wind, Fire and Motown. But I used to play in a band down here in L.A., and we played all kinds of Tower Power tunes. So I've been playing that music, Paul, for for a good 10 years. The gig was over. I thanked the leader, Emilio Castillo, for the job. I said, oh, I'll never see it again. And he goes, we'll see you again. Other trumpet player went on tour with a big rock and roll band. And so they called me in to sub. And uh, June 3rd, I started playing with the band of 2011 for two and a half months. And then the other trumpet player came back and he, uh, he left the band. And so they called me up and I said, well, I've never snaked a gig or gone after anyone's gig ever. And they said, no, 
you know, he, he was let go, but we want you. If you don't want it, we're going down the list. I said, so if I don't take it, you're going to audition other people. You'll, yeah, but it's yours. You're the first call. I said, I'll take it. I was in the band nine and a half years, but nine years on the road with Tower of Power, 200 plus days a year. And we went to all over the United States. I went to Japan twice, South Korea twice. I went to St. Petersburg twice to play a private party for oligarchs. That was strange. Oh, I should but, say uh, oligarchs, huh? Yeah, it, yeah, it was this multi, multi, multi-billionaire, huge fan of Tower, and he hired us twice. Both times, we went in there. All these metal detectors and this. And, so was uh, it his house or was, something? A little concert hall in his house because he had so it, much or something was, like yeah, that. It was. Yeah, it was. on his. It was on his compound. Okay, and there, there was house. literally yes, you're right compound. <laughs> right. Yeah. It, yeah. He had like a little concert. Uh, he had a huge estate. And so we were allowed to go anywhere else, but it was crazy because there was like 30 guests, men, and they had all these girls there, but they had about approximately 100 to 120 bodyguards and huge Russian guys with like machine guns and sidearms. It's like, and the food was great and a full bar. And it was like, I just want to go home. You just want to stay home with your wife, Melanie, and enjoy your life. You stepped aside, and what drove you to do that? I know it's, it's been recent, but I think I'm kind of understanding why, because you're talking about the travel, and it sounds very sexy, but then it sounds very grueling, and I think that probably had something to do with it. Yeah, 50 years of traveling. There was a great studio musician I talked to who's legendary, Yuan Racy. And I was studying with him, and he was the trumpet player for uh, Chinatown. And he also played in the MGM Orchestra and all the big movie dates. He was the nicest guy I ever met. Phenomenal, unbelievable musician and the nicest man. And I said, why did you just quit? And he said, Sal, I just got tired, and I didn't feel it anymore. And so I was burning out a little bit, but now I feel like playing again, but I don't want to travel. I really don't. Well, I was going to get you know, to that. I, I was going to ask you about that. Like, I hope you're not hanging it up entirely. And we did talk uh, recently about some of the things you're looking at. So what are you doing now and what do you hope to be doing? I know you want to stay local, uh, but beyond that, what are you hoping uh, happens now? I'm doing little recording sessions. I did a, a clinic up at Stanford University, and that was it was quite the honor. It was a great university, and um, it was it was really cute because when I went up there, I knew my friend runs the music program there, Mike Calisettis, and I said, "Do you have any students here that are going to be professional musicians?" He said, "No," and they're all going to be, you know, brain surgeons and chemical engineers, and and they were just beautiful gray matter. And I just asked them all. I said. You know, it you're all very talented and you've dedicated your life to practicing, but you're going to go in these other directions in life. And, you know, the couple of people wanted to be uh, just scientists or astronauts. And I said, just keep music in your life. So Greeks used to say there was nine art forms and nine muses for that. Uh, music is definitely my favorite. I think I would rather be blind than deaf. And a lot of friends of mine, they went into the recording studio or playing in the pit for plays. And I have all these different friends that work like that. And they said, Lisa, tell me, Sal, it's called show business. It's not art music business. You do all these artistic gigs. And I said, I just figured I want to be happy. And this is what I love. And the funny thing is some of those friends, you know, 20, 30 years later, they said, you did it right. I said, well, you made a lot of money playing rock and roll trumpet with all these different big names. Your job, it was unfulfilling. And I, I literally, I was friends with the great Dizzy Gillespie, Freddie Hubbard. I met Miles Davis. I heard Chet Baker. I just loved jazz. And I loved trumpet. And I heard almost all the big bands. Uh, when I was uh, 15 years old, I started playing with Mexican bands two to four gigs a week. And so when I turned 16, I bought myself a 61 Volkswagen Bug. And if I wasn't working on Friday or Saturday night, 
I would drive down to Disneyland where you could get into for $6 and you had to buy the coupons to go on the rides. Well, I would just go in there to the Carnation Plaza and I'd hear Buddy Rich. I heard Duke Ellington, uh, Count Basie, uh, Maynard Ferguson. I heard all these unbelievably great bands. Well, you certainly have gone to the head of the class. And I think as I listen to what you're saying, and I really enjoy hearing the way you kind of connect these dots and how things happen, but you're an artist first, and that's why you were so successful. And I think that there are a lot of successful people that you described that maybe did it for the money and, and, and whatever, the exposure and the adoration. But the really great artists that stand the test of time approach it like you. I knew what I wanted to do. There's a quote in the Bible that everyone knows. And when I was really young, I saw this. And it's, you know, give a man a fish for the day. He feeds himself for the day. Teach a man how to fish. He feeds himself for life. But what I, what I, what I found out, it's where you fish. You have to go where the work is. You, you have to go where the gigs are that you want to do. And the only time I really ever cozied up to the bar was to listen to see which way the money and the gigs were flowing. And then I go, well, I want to do this. I want to do that. And so I would, I would make myself available. And, and I would really literally have the uh, trumpet in, in the trunk of my car in case I ever got invited to get up and play. And that's what happened with Gerald Wilson's uh, big band here in L.A. Fantastic, historic big band. All of a sudden, they the trumpet. I just I was ready. I just always made myself ready and available. My run with Tower, I would still study with trumpet players. And they go, what do you want? I can't teach you anything. I said, no, you know this, and I don't know how to do it, and I want to learn how to do it, and I will pay you to teach me. And I I would go take a lesson. Because it's all about growing uh, as a musician, growing as a human being, but growing in positive directions in life. And I imagine that growing never stops. I mean, you're still trying to get better and better every day, right? You absolutely, you know, it's, and nowadays I just really just want to play music. I love, and I will, I've been subbing on the Clayton Hamilton jazz orchestra doing recording sessions in town. And as you know, Melanie's an unbelievable singer and she's had quite the career herself. When we were doing the two CDs for Tower of Power, I recommend, I heard the leader of the band, Emilio Castillo, say, yeah, I'm going to put some, you know, female vocalists on there. I, I got him aside. I said, you have to give my wife a chance. because I don't have to do anything. I said, you give her a shot. You're not going to believe how great she sings. I had already given him RCD, Fly, which actually got nominated for a Latin Grammy back in, I believe, 2003. And so he listened to it, and he goes, oh, my God. And he gave her a shot. And he liked me, but he fell in love with my wife singing. And so the next two albums, Melanie's on half of the songs. Sal, what's next for you? And I'll just, you know, have a small group, and we'll just split the money and just let us eat anything off the menu and show us a couple bottles of nice red wine. You know what? work for food. I'm kidding. I work for food and gas money and just enjoy sleeping in my own bed. But you have to pay me to leave the house. What is your favorite song that you like to play, whether it's with Tower of Power or any song? Do you have one that you just go, I love this song? Well, with Tower, it was What is Hip. I love that tune. It was written mostly by uh, Stephen Doc Kupka. He was the main songwriter. To me, he was the real heart and soul of the band. He wrote 70% of all the music. You have to do what you love in life and just save your money and just try and make the world a better place. I want to mention one thing. I've only heard your wife sing one time, and I have to say she does have an incredible voice. I was absolutely mesmerized by it, and it was actually at her father's celebration of life at the Rose Bowl, um, and her father being Keith Jackson, and she just sang this just beautiful song, and it was that's what I remember most about Keith Jackson's celebration of life. There was not a dry eye in the house. Melanie has the gift; she really is a natural. It, that's really what it is, and 
at the end of the Tower Power shows, we would go out and the whole band would go out and sign the T-shirts and the pictures and autographs and all this and that. And I see these young kids. They go, oh, my, my, my daughter and my son plays trumpet. And I would say, here's the secret right here. Do something you love, but the harder you work, the luckier you get in life. Work harder than anyone and be a nice person. My thanks to Sal Caracciolo for spending time with us on Voices of Experience. Really enjoyed that interview. I would like to say hi to Turi Ann Jackson, and that would be Sal's mother-in-law, who was married to the legendary broadcaster Keith Jackson, and of course to Melanie, the daughter of Keith Jackson. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience for today. My name is Paul Casey, and along with Eric Crema, we thank you for joining us today. And, of course, thanks to Sal Cracciola and Greg Witter for being with us today. I promised the best show in history, and I think we delivered. Next week, Eric is going to be talking to the Deputy Mayor of Everett. Our spotlight is on Everett and seeing what they're up to. And I'm going to be visiting with Steve Rabel, Current Steve uh, Rabel is the uh, current Seahawks play-by-play announcer, former Seahawk player, former news anchor at Cairo, and he's just a Northwest gem. I really look forward to talking to him. Any comments about what you heard today? You can call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. What is your take on what is happening to the Pac-12? That's 425-653-1166. And just please keep your comments short. Uh, Quote of the week, I want to give this in honor of July the 4th. Quote, our flag does not fly because the wind moves it. It flies with the last breath of each soldier who died protecting it. That's an unknown contributor, but it is located on a marble wall at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Park in Trumbull, Connecticut. This is courtesy of Mike Flynn and his blog, Flynn's Heart. Have a great rest of the week.